Welcome to the CKTH podcast. For today's program, we are thrilled and honored to meet with Miss Gwen Barry. Hailing from East St. Louis and an alumnus of the University of Southern Illinois, Gwen is one of the track and field world's elite hammer throwers. In other words, from USA track and field to anybody else on the global stage, Olympics or otherwise, Gwen is best of the best status at what she does. And in addition to being somebody with unmistakable individual style, Gwen is also renowned for being a force outside of the athletic arena. From her New York Times coverage to her recent appearance on HBO's Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel, Gwen's steadfast resolve in being a leader for social reform and racial equality is a story that still more people need to know about. Gwen takes risks, she puts in the work, and she clearly possesses rare gifts. Big ups and huge respect to Gwen for taking time away from being a mother, as well as a gold medal hopeful to have this conversation. Enjoy. Gwen, how's it going? It's going good. It's going good. Thanks for asking. <laughs> so uh, where in the world are you reporting from uh, at this time? So right now I'm in Houston, Texas, the Houston, Texas. So it's a little rainy out today, but nice weather as always. And, you know, the sun is shining. So we good. Yeah, the, the Houston's a sunny place. I mean, it, it gets hot, obviously, but it's uh, got a lot of sunshine, I imagine. Yeah. It's hot and it's humid. So as far as people with allergies, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty tough, but for the most part, the weather is nice all year round. So you can't, can't be mad at it. Right. And, and I mean, as somebody who has had at least one or two bouts with an allergy attack, I (laughs) mean, oh my goodness. Yeah. Just, you know, like on like clockwork, every single time the seasons change, a little bit of pollen goes up into the air. Oh, yeah. It's just like, lock it in. Gonna, gonna have a good sneeze or two or something like that. Yeah, whatever, right. you know? <laughs> so, uh, look, so before we jump into the pod, uh, and you, you and I chatted about this before, you know, uh, I just wanted to say thank you to you um, for your individual integrity and... Um, this kind of, I guess, just edge and personal style that you bring to the competitive arena. I mean, for me, these are the kinds of nuances with any competitor in any sort of field of sport, or I guess any competitive uh, engagement at all. Like, you know, you bring this kind of attention to detail, it seems, in everything that you do. And it's so unmistakable. So I just want to say thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much. That was that was good. I like that. yeah i mean it's it you know like i said i mean as somebody who's grown up um being just kind of a massive fan of sport and the more that you live in the world of sport the more that you kind of i think appreciate just the human experience you know Mm -hmm. people are on their grind people are putting in the ten thousand hours you know whatever the analogy is shooting shots in the gym when nobody's around Mm -hmm. and 
at the same time, you realize that, you know, you're, you're investing so much of yourself into this mm -hmm. situation, whatever the goal might be, that you got to have some self-expression in there. Absolutely. I feel like there's no point. Um, for most athletes, what we do is kind of boring. You know, it's redundant. We do it every day, all the time. Because to be an elite athlete, you know, it's mastery. So it's going to be boring. And that's what people don't see. The hard work is pretty boring. So to be able to step on the stage, you know, and then also have self-expression and something else to look forward to, something else to give you motivation in regards to yourself and your life and your life experience, I think that's really important. And that's something that ne should never be silenced or should never be pushed under the rug because honestly, that's what sells. I mean, what are, what are we here for? Exactly. Life's too short. Absolutely. Yeah, you got to let these people know. So, um, all right, so let, let's wind it back. Uh, start from the very beginning. Where are you from? I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I was born in East St. Louis for everybody who knows, you know. It's, it's not the best place to be born and raised, but I was born there and then I was raised in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I, I've heard, heard um, a lot of different things about, about that uh, part, of the, part of the country. And um, I mean, obviously there's just like so many iconic, um, I think, people that are from there that we probably overlook uh, oh, yeah. as, as, or not know that, that that's exactly where they're from. Um, so, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I read that you were a basketball player growing up, um, out of curiosity because I'm a big NBA fan. Um, if you, if you have a favorite player, NBA or WNBA, just that of stands course. out. For me, Kevin Durant, that's my number oh. one guy. Kevin okay. Durant, I do also like Kyrie, but Kevin Durant, Jimmy Butler, Kyrie, like those are my go-to guys. Okay. All right. I can, I can get down with that. I respect all those dudes. Um, definitely admire each one of them for being somebody that is just willing to be a lightning rod. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know? unapologetic. I feel like, you know, the more Kyrie expresses himself, the more KD expresses himself, um, people listen. And recently they have been saying some pretty powerful things and doing some powerful things in the community. So you have to respect him for that. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the nice thing that we're that we're seeing now is that, you know, this kind of perspective, this point of view, whatever you want to call it, it's not like it's 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 just like how it should be. Right. Like, I think right. when people when people in whatever capacity are interacting with a Kyrie or a KD or like you said, a Jimmy Butler, I mean, and people say, oh, it's like, you know, it's it's a new era of the league. It's a, it's a player run league, whatever. Da -da. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I mean, that's kind of how it should be. Absolutely. For sure. And then, you know, can't forget about the WNBA, <clears throat> you know, everything that they've done um, politically and socially, um, you know, they changed the course of history, especially in Atlanta. So athletes expressing themselves and getting things done, um, mm -hmm. I think that's the new, it's kind of like a renaissance happening. and. Um, Unlike it was 50 years ago, more people are listening because of social media. You know, more mm -hmm. information is being spread because of social media. And um, the WNBA, like I said, you got to give them their roses because they are changing the system. And that's mm -hmm. extremely important. 
No, big shout out to the WNBA. I mean, for sure. Obviously, they're they're. You could argue that they're the most fundamentally sound players uh, on the planet. Of course, they're women <laughs> <laughs> and they're athletes. So I mean, come on. Paying attention to the details. I mean, oh, yeah. it pays off. It, play, it pays <laughs> off. Um, okay, and so um, about your um, arena of expertise in the sporting sense, not to play favorites about your throwing event, um, because I I love all the throws, um, but you know, from an expert's perspective, because I genuinely think that the hammers kind of got this element of this additional kind of badass factor or something like that. Yeah. What what makes the hammer the hammer? Like separate these things out for us. I feel like what makes the hammer the hammer is it is the only event in track and field besides the pole vault where you are manipulating something that is separated from your body, like that is far from you. Um, and you have to manipulate it to a way where you can get it to go the farthest. That's the hardest thing. Now, pole vault is different because you can still use your body and it's still, you know, it's not too far away from you because it's your arm's length. It's in your hands. So for hammer, it's arm's length and it's actually another wire that separates you from the actual implement that you're throwing. So um, that's the difference between hammer and any other event in track and field that has an implement. Hmm. And when did you when did you really get into hammer? I mean, it's like not really the first thing people do when they step to the yeah. track. So I never knew anything about hammer. I wasn't even a thrower in high school. Um, I was a jumper and I was a multi-event athlete. So um, I went to college and one of the college coaches, so um, in college I had to throw the shot put because of the multi-event, I had to throw the shot put. So I would train with the throwers to get really, really good at the shot put because that was going to be one of the events where I scored the most points in the heptathlon. Sorry. Mm. So um, as I was throwing the shot put and practicing with the throwers, the throwers coach was like, you should try the hammer. Like, you're powerful, you know, you're athletic, you should just give it a try. And I was like, nah, I'm okay. You know, I'm not big, I'm not strong, you know, I'm just down here for this one event and then I'll go back <laughs> up there to jump and do what I need to do. And right. so he pushed me for like six months and then eventually I just tried it. So I was introduced to Hammer my sophomore year of college. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, that, I mean, that's a steep curve. You go from sophomore year of college to elite world-class status in, in what was that window of time? Three years, like three years. Yep, I got good at the hammer throw in three years. And what's crazy is um, I went to like a junior elite level in three months. So that's why I kind of stuck with it. Like I missed the junior Olympic team by like a foul, literally on the sector line and they call it a foul. So I missed the junior Olympic team by a sector line. and. I was I was the junior lead in three three months of doing it, and then Damn. I became world class in three years. Wow! Yeah, I mean, you know, as somebody who uh, I love to joke about this that you know I ran four years of track, um, you know, at, at at Dartmouth, which we had some athletes when I was there. Mustafa Durahim, shout out, um, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, I was like just fast enough to never be embarrassed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause I was coming from the football team and, you know, short sprints was just like a good time, you know, and it's like, yeah. as long as they didn't have to stick me in a four by four, I was like, okay with it. But like, 
I can't imagine that feeling of going, like you just said, from, from being like, you know, I'm, I'm quite certain that you were a very, very competitive athlete and whatever you put yourself towards, but yeah. to make that leap, to go to like that world-class level in anything, whether it's, you know, three years, 10 years, three months though, mm-hmm. is like a whole nother situation. Yeah, it was, it was really overwhelming. And I think I was better than what I was ready for. I was better mm. than what I was prepared for. So my first my first year of doing the indoor competition for track and field, being a thrower, I won the shot put. I won the weight throw, which I have the world record, record in. And then I got fifth in the triple jump. So I was winning literally my first time ever competing at an indoor throws event in conference like I was winning the first so I was just like ah crap what is this world I'm stepping into I don't even know what I'm doing and I'm just winning so and I literally (laughs) had to go from the shot put to the triple jump so I was like throwing the shot put and then I had to go run and then jump in a triple jump so it was it was really crazy and I was really good really fast and it was really overwhelming I'm not gonna I I didn't know what I was doing I mean, I could, I could, I could not relate, but I could completely understand how that would just be like a massive shift. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. So, I mean, I just, I can't get over that story every single time I do a little bit of research about it. I'm just like, this is incredible. Yeah. Uh, it happened. <laughs> so, so, I mean, a lot obviously has happened in a very short amount of time for you in terms of just like everything. I mean, in, and I mean, this is happening in parallel, obviously, of everything that we've seen, you know, over the last year. And, 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 and I think that we can say that many of the major sporting leagues and organizations around the world have, have, have made some progress towards right. various social you know, reform efforts. And I think that it's safe to say that we've got a long ways to go. But for anybody that takes the time to watch, you know, the brilliant piece that the New York Times uh, made about you. Um, it would seem as if this Rule 50 situation within the Olympic Charter is not making best efforts in this new era, straight up. The Olympic Rule 50 is not making any effort at all (laughs) in this renaissance and world uh, transformation. Um, I feel like the IOC is extremely capable to take a stance um, show solidarity to what's really going on in this world, the oppression mm-hmm. in this world, and yet they refuse to. Mm-hmm. And it's disappointing. Without question. I mean, you know, look, I, th- I, think, I think that we've all grown up knowing and very much appreciating what that Olympic arena, what those Olympic rings, which I see you have, you know, going on on, on, yeah, on your wrist there. <laughs> I mean, what those what those symbols historically stand for um, predates, you know, that the symbolism of that logo that predates Rule Fifty, right. that predates any charter. You know, I mean, I don't know how many times that the in-house general counsel for the uh, you know Olympic Committee has redone that language, right? Right and trying to give it a judge from a wordsmithing standpoint. But at the end of the day, it's just like you're saying, from an, uh, from an emotional intelligence standpoint, from a, yo, let's like get with what's happening in 2021 standpoint, 
I mean, there's another edit there that needs to kind of yeah. happen. Absolutely. There's another edit and their verbiage is very, um, it's very interesting. So I feel like, especially nowadays, with what's going on with the Rule 50, they're picking on Black people. Like, they're saying raising of the fist, um, kneeling, or they're saying um, no, no Black Lives Matter apparel. So it's just like, why are you specifically targeting the group of people who are the most recognized and iconic for doing these gestures? Mm-hmm. You know, they're not, they're not saying anything about any other forms of protest. Some athletes in the past have um, held two flags. Some mm-hmm. athletes in the past have turned their backs. Some athletes in the past, you know, there's different forms of protest, but in particular, right now, they are targeting Black people and Black athletes in their gestures of what they did. Mm. So I feel like that in itself is just like, why? So if and, you say no Black Lives Matter apparel, so no Asian hate apparel, um, everything that's going on in the world right now, you can't speak on, you can speak on anything you want, but they specifically are targeting and mentioning gestures or forms of protest that Black athletes have done. And that which, says a lot. It says a ton. And I mean, let's face it, you know, uh, the the iconic image of John Carlos and Tommy Smith back in the day is something that has gotten reused and reused and reused over and over and over again. And, you know, in this world of like CPA and NFTs and whatnot, I don't think John Carlos and Tommy Smith are getting as many royalties as they probably deserve of how many times those clips have like been broadcast to the entire planet. Oh, they don't get any royalties because you the IOC I mean? owns it. Yeah, the IOC so, owns it. So, so you're kind of like, look, you guys can't have it both ways. Right. Okay. USA Track and Field, we all know what that stands for on a global basis when it comes to like, to, to be honest, and not a lot of people know this. Track and field is the second most frequented, second most popular sporting activity on this planet after soccer. And it's clearly the oldest activity on this planet before soccer. Yes. And USA track and field is like right there at the apex of that community. Right. Hashtag track nation, whatever. Not to call out USATF, maybe we need to call them out. I don't know. I'm just saying, like, we can't have it both ways. Nope. We have we have to be a thousand percent behind our athletes and a thousand percent behind these people because what we're really championing here is that human experience as an athlete, getting it right. done, investing in yourself, hell or high water. I mean, Gwen, it cannot be said enough that you are taking on a certain measure of risk every day that you are dedicating yourself to something that you are like top three, top one, top two, whatever people on this planet to do. Absolutely. I mean, this is something that like needs to get heard over and over and over again, because this is your career. For sure. And to be honest and to be real, if you want to talk numbers or if you want to talk statistics, you can add up since the Olympic Games, add up all the medals that the black athletes from America only mm. have won. 
we have produced more medals, black athletes alone in America than the world, than every other country since the Olympic Games, just black athletes only. Right. So why aren't we considered? Why aren't we recognized? Why is it that we cannot capitalize off our efforts? And then if we can't capitalize off our efforts, don't silence us when we use our platform to speak mm. truth about our lives and what we had to endure to even be here. That's right. We take risks just going outside. Forget competing for America. We take risks every day just living here and being Black here. So time and time again, we see that, again, no one cares about us. No one considers us. They only want us for what we can produce. And that goes all the way back to slavery, since the, mm. before slavery here in America. And, and look, Gwen, you've earned these moments in your life. Again, to go back to life being too short, how many times do you have that moment on the podium, so to speak? I mean, some, how people many... don't even, some people can't even dream of that moment. So the people who sacrificed their lives for eight, 12 years, mm. like, come on, you literally, it comes once, once every four years. It's not like we have this opportunity over and over again, like other sports, like the NBA or the NFL, where every year they're competing for a national title or a championship. We have mm. it once every four. Pan American Games once every three or two. NATCAT Games once every three or two. So our lives, we literally spend four years, and who knows what can happen in those four years for our moment. And you telling me I can't do what I want? You're right. crazy. Right. And and just for you know everybody that that uh, taps in, I mean, walk us through again that moment on that podium. And you, I remember, you know, you hearing this, uh, describe this on, on the, on the New York times piece where you knew that you had a bigger mission, one, two, that you were living in the moment in your life. And that three, that you knew that if you didn't seize that moment, the way that you believed that you could, that you wouldn't, you know, that you wouldn't forgive yourself maybe. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I, I definitely was not at, at peace with myself because I know what the national anthem stands for. I know the other two verses that no one ever does research about and why they exist and what they mean and what they stand for. So we only sing the first verse, which is BS in the begin, because, mm. you know, no one, like I said, America doesn't project what it what it says. Like America says, oh, freedom and justice for all. And no, it's freedom and justice for the elite or most of the elite. If you have the money or you have the power to change that. So it's just like, I, I know what it stands for. So in that moment on that podium, we're like, never mind the, the fact that nobody even wanted me there. Um, I just kind of thought about it this morning. Um, on like it's like a little thrower site or whatever that people go on to um, talk about throws and throws only. And so one of the American sweethearts, of course, the typical American sweetheart, she didn't make the team. So me and another girl made the team. And so literally she did not even make the team. And somebody said, well, who's going to win her medal today? So forget the fact that she didn't even make the team. We were going to win her medal. It's just like. She's not even here. 
Right. So from that point too, it's like you don't even want the people, America or this white man's sport, you don't even want the people who literally deserve to make the team to be on the team to represent. So you're going to see me and you're going to respect me because I won and mm. I'm here. And too often enough, black people, we are treated like that. Like we are not even considered when we make it. It's like, it's ridiculous. So on the podium, I was like, I endured all of this. I worked my butt off for all of this. And I am tired of the fact that we are never considered when we do most of, if not all of, times two, the work. Mm. We have to do the work times two. We have to blend in times three. You know, so here I am. And so I stood for everybody on that day, on that podium, who has ever been in that situation and felt like me. I'm just like everybody else. And so I was like, but we're here. Black people stand up because this is what happens all the time. All the time. And you knew, and look, you knew that there was most likely going to be some level of blowback that you were going to have to deal with. You knew that. Oh, yeah. And you took that on. Yeah, I, I didn't know how big it was going to be. <laughs> I knew it was going to be some blowback. But you it. still took it on. You took it on. Oh, yeah. You said, you said hell or high water, I'm, I'm taking on this risk. I know what I'm doing. I'm yeah. standing for what I believe in. No one is ever going to be able to take that away from you, in addition to mm-hmm. all the medals from everybody else that you've won. Right. And the reality is, like, I mean, how embarrassed must these people feel knowing that, like, you're the one with the championship belt. You know, they're what? making their own, you know what? They're making their own competitive arena softer because they're not letting the person with the real deal OG championship belt into that arena. That doesn't make sense. Right. Or the, or they don't even want me there. Right. They want somebody else there besides the person who deserves to be there. It's like, so, come on, man. So, so if you can say, and, 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 you know, uh, I have a lot of respect for everybody's company. Everybody's trying to kind of, you know, grind out something, but like, clearly there was probably at least some sponsors that you were surprised by their actions. I'm just guessing. Mm, With me being, I would say as conscious as I am, I wasn't surprised by any big company's decision. Mm. Um, I know who they wanted me to be, who they wanted me to appear to be. Like I said, they wanted me to stand in. They wanted me to be the typical American sweetheart. Um, I can't be that. I'm not that. And when I played mm. that role, they were extremely supportive. So I knew that as soon as, you know, I became who I am for real in real life, that they wouldn't like that, that, that vision of me. They were only supporting me because they liked the submissive, um, you know, vision of me. And I'm not that person. And I only Mm -hmm. played that role because one, I was not supported. Two, I was too afraid to be myself. And three, um, you know, it's already hard being in this sport. So if you don't have the funding, the support, you know, it's hard to stay in it. So I I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised by, um, you know, me being dropped by certain companies or me being threatened by certain companies. I wasn't surprised at all. And that's why I went back and forth with them too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I mean, like, from a from a commercial standpoint, like I thought it was so powerful talking about Rule 50, talking about the Olympic Charter, knowing that there's this kind of, you know, bureaucratic panel of people that 
have probably never completed a track workout in their lives, right. you know, uh, which, which says something, right? Because anybody who's ever done a real deal track workout where you cannot move or see straight for like 10 minutes after that last 200 or whatever, right? you appreciate it. But these folks, I, I don't know if they all the way understand sometimes the, the, the impact that their decisions have on somebody's real deal career. And right. that said, from a commercial standpoint, these companies, it's a different, it's a different set of language in that dialogue. Yeah. You know, it's there's it's business and they're trying yeah. to couch it and they're always trying to kind of shuck and jive with it. But at the end of the day, you're listening to them and you're like, yo, like this is the same level of bureaucracy that I'm seeing on that panel. All the time. It's the same thing. It's so, no different. How have any of these former sponsors tried to kind of work their way back with you? How is that? How is that relationship? Oh, not really. Um, I feel like, you know, they let me know where they stood. Um, some, some people in said companies have like, you know, emailed me or said certain type of things, but, uh, not really. I kind of don't even look 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 for that you know it's like an it's like an old relationship you don't even want to check their instagram any longer never it's, it's like, in the rear view why even go back and every and every time i do see an ad or i do see something it's just like i i know what they really stand for and i know why they are really supporting the people that they're supporting and it's just fake mm. it's fake so i'm just like man forget that That's right just, it's, look it's fake and and I tell you what, as a as a passionate consumer of brands that I grew up on, brands that you grew up on, it's disappointing, obviously, when when you feel like, oh man, like, you know, when you like take a step back and you're like, yo, if like if I went to their company party, would I have a good time? Or would I kind of be like, yo, like I thought this was gonna be kind of a little better. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's get the hell out of here. Right. Um, so clearly, I guess let me rephrase this. How energized are you to once again be in control of that moment again on an Olympic podium? Um, you know, I'm I'm motivated. I mean, it's a it's a it's a soft toss question, but I mean yeah. but I mean you you've already gone through this process with everybody. And now they know that this that this process is gearing back up again. I mean, that's just got to be a feeling or a moment that for you gives some level of goosebumps. For sure. Um, I feel like after being able to, um, you know, implement some change, especially with the USOPC, um, mm -hmm. the IOC definitely doesn't want me to make this Olympic team. Because, you know, we still have Olympic trials and top three on the day make the team. So nothing's for sure right now. No one has made the team right now for track and field. But I know that the IOC, they don't want to see me there. That would probably be their worst nightmare. So that in itself pumps me up. No doubt. They know if they see me, they're going to have to hear me too. I love that. <laughs> I, I mean, it gives me goosebumps. So... Uh, as an elite performer, what uh, just describe, because I, I can't really even wrap my head around it, like what the last 24 months has been like from a training perspective, right? You've 
dealt with challenges with sponsors, having to reconfigure your training regimen, which I don't think that the outside world understands how these things kind of, you know, have to reach a certain level of crescendo when like you're ready for that one particular meet. Right. Um, um, the last 24 months, it's, it's been kind of different. You know, I feel like, but it's been different and pretty hard for everybody. Mentally, emotionally, training wise, I feel like everybody had to, you know, be creative, mm. um, reconstruct their mental one because we didn't have sports. Um, and then to reconstruct how they were going to train, because usually track and field, we do have off years. But again, like you said, this year was leading up to something really, really special. So when you're planning to lead up to something like that and you don't have it, um, that's hard mentally. Um, you lose motivation, you lose focus, you're unhappy. So the past 24 months for me has been a roller coaster for sure. But I think I needed it because I haven't had a normal life my whole mm. career. So I was able to do things that I would do if I wasn't an athlete. And I did enjoy that. Hmm. That's great to hear. Yeah. That's super refreshing to hear. And obviously you deserve it. Yeah, um, for sure. So you're, you're in Houston. I imagine you train in Houston as well. Yes. Um, you know, who are the coaches? What's the, what's the track? What's the environment that you're usually training in? Um, so my environment is, is pretty much chill, pretty much supportive. Like my coach is more, you know, of a family member. You know, I like to consider him as my godfather because, um, we don't have like a coach athlete relationship. It's more family because, um, in order to deal with me and, you know, my past, my traumas, um, you know, just who I am as a person, you have to know me on a different type of level than just my coach. I feel mm. like that's kind of cliche. Most elite athletes, if they don't have a particular relationship with their with the person who's training them, um, there'd be no trust and you really can't get anywhere. Um, so I feel like he's more of my family. Um, my training partners, uh, they're younger than me, so I need that because I'm kind of old, you know, I can't move how I used to move no more. So that keeps me on my toes. And um, I train at the University of Houston here and there. And, you know, the legacy there is phenomenal. And, right. you know, they support they support me. Um, they support my training. They they rolled out the red carpet. So I'm grateful for them, too. That's great. I mean, it it it, it goes a long way, obviously, on a day to day level to be able to know that you're like truly settled into like a group of people that you would call, like you said, family, community. It's, it's not trite because it's, it's real. There's a lot of athletes that make a lot of great things happen that unfortunately don't have a lot of things to lean back on in that environment or, right. They find themselves in an environment where they thought it was going to be a great fit. And all of a sudden they're looking to yeah. get out of Dodge. So, I mean, you can't, yeah. I mean, you, you, you can't say enough about having that. Yeah, um, for sure. I think I think that's the number one thing that's important. A lot of people think that funding an athlete is important, but I think the environment, um, being accepted, just this the cohesiveness and the relationship that you have with your training partners and your coach, that's the most important. Because if you don't have that, the money means nothing. You'll never right. make it, you'll always fail and you'll always be unhappy. So what you know, for you, um, you know, how do you keep that that edge that that mental sharpness kind of going through this process like is there a specific technique that you kind of 
have gotten to sort of refine over the years in terms of motivation and all that kind of stuff? Um, not really. You know, I, I was given my purpose at a really young age because I had my child at the age of 14, 15. So wow. um, that's something that I, I think I have over a lot of other people. I was motivated very early. Um, I was motivated to never have to go through the things that I went through growing up. Um, so my traumatic experiences in life, um, me being a young mother and having to endure the stress and the worry and the judgment that comes with that, um, that's, that's kind of saved me as far as motivation. Um, I know who I'm doing it for. I have a family to take care of. So that's, that's always number one. I feel mm. like too now with my purpose in life, you know, saving lives, um, sharing information, um, being honest and being unapologetic about how Blacks should be treated here in America is something else that's motivated me more than, you know, more than anything as well. Because, you know, like I said, throwing the hammer, that's redundant. You know, it's boring. You know, you go out to the field, you throw, you pick up, you throw again, you pick up, you listen to music, you talk here and there. But, you know, when you're training, you're you're in master mode. So it's really nothing that you want to think of outside of that. So, you know, my, my motivation, like I said, I've been given that early and that's never changed. Um, I've mm. always been an advocate for my family and now for my people. So no doubt. I mean, what, what have been some of the other areas off the track, uh, that the last 12, 18, 24 months has, has kind of given you more of an ability to sort of tap into those groups? Like what are some of those organizations that you've done some stuff with that you feel like sharing? Oh, for sure. Color of change. Um, they're my number one go-to my biggest supporters, um, the New York athletic club, they have supported me this whole journey. Um, mm. they didn't defund me. Um, they said that they were going to support me. They didn't drop me. So shout out to New York AC, New York athletic club, um, Airbnb. Um, I do a lot of work with them. They've supported me, even though they do have ties with the IOC, you know, we have honest conversations about, you know, everything that goes into business with them. Um, LA 84 foundation. I work with the Muhammad Ali center. Um, I've worked with different, um, different podcasts, different companies, and also universities for sure. So I've hmm. worked with a lot of people and, um, I've, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed networking and, you know, feeling the true, true support from people who know this is who I am and mm -hmm. I don't have to pretend or apologize for feeling how I feel and speaking up. That's right. No, I mean, and, and like you said, I mean, these days, as fans of sport and as people that are sharing a community with one another, you know, we want to know who's really behind the, the, the heroes that we have. Right. We, we want to know the real deal, the real McCoy, you know, the, 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 the true personalities. We, we, we want to see that level of self-expression because that's the age that we're in. I mean, I, I think that the, the age of, playing dress up and cosplay and making kind of it seem like it's this way and it's something else. I don't think that anybody is interested in that anymore. No, I think that's well overdue. And that screams suppression. That screams like, you know, I'm just going to do what everybody wants me to do. Like, it's just, it's just, it's just manipulation and suppression. And of course, again, because of social media, because of the younger generation, everybody's like, all right, I'm going to be me. You're going to love me or hate me for it. Which one? Mm -hmm. Pick one. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. being yourself 
is um you know it's just it's better of course it's, it feels uh, good to be yourself in your own skin it feels real good it's it's hard to pretend and some people still do it every day that's they, true some people do it every day and we see them and sometimes you just feel like giving them a big hug you know because <laughs> it because they just seem like kind of scared or sad and you're almost like yo like i'm embarrassed for you like yeah. I feel bad for you, man. Like, I feel bad you can't just kind of come out of your own skin and just, like, accept things as they are. Yeah. And, I mean, and and it does speak to the world, too, because it's like, why do they feel like that? Why do they feel like they have to pretend? I mean, it's something behind everything. So. Mm -hmm. So, overall, I mean, and and I, we've sort of, we've sort of uh, touched on a lot of this, but, I mean... I have this conversation with friends of mine about track and field all the time. You know, everybody always says, oh, the NBA, the NBA, WNBA, I mean, like that organization is so good at embracing and marketing their players as personalities. Right. And I, I think it's pretty clear that some of the other leagues around aren't as good, right? Like, right. how can the world of track and field and how can just track in general, how can it all be better? How can track be better? Um, well, we have to first start by saying that track and field is it's not a business. It's mm. um, it's a paid or unpaid hobby. It's volunteer work because we are governed and we are orchestrated under the International Olympic Committee. So even under that, we don't get paid. A lot of people think that track and field athletes get paid to perform, and that's not true. On our highest stage... So say if, it's just like saying that the NFL players go to the NFL championships. It's two teams, right? Saying that they don't get paid to compete at the championships. That's that's essentially every Olympic sport. So number one, it's not a business. We're not a business. It's a paid hobby. Some people get paid way more than others because of the nature of their event or their sponsors that come with with their, you know, the sponsors that come and support them, the sponsors that want them for branding or content. But other than that, number one, track and field is not a business. Number two, um, track and field did not keep up with the change of times. So mm-hmm. when basketball, when football, hockey, soccer, when they changed with the course of time and with the change of time with the social media error, track and field didn't. The Olympic, the Olympic sports didn't because there's no money in it. There's mm. too many athletes under the umbrella. Whereas the NBA, the NFL, it's only team. It's a couple of teams, maybe thousand athletes, what have you. But the owners control the money. The IOC controls our money, and it's not distributed to us. Mm. So there's no money for any type of change if all the money is held to the IOC and the broadcasting companies. I don't know the answer to how track and field can become a better business. Um, We would have to break away from the IOC, but I don't think that's going to happen because then we will break away from the Olympic Games. So it's it's not even, you can't compare track and field to any other sport here in America. It's not the same. Which again, it's, it's, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm a fan and, um, I I don't know if that makes me some sort of purist about the sport or whatever, but you know, there's an extraordinarily high correlation between track on one side 
and people that go and play basketball and football. And then on the other side of track, there's a very strong correlation on the distance, uh, distance events, obviously, between people that end up doing something like, you know, something on a, a cycling kind of racing team capacity or triathlon or long distance running, trail running, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But track and field tends to be like the foundation piece. Oh, yeah, definitely. Track and field is the foundation for every sport. You know? Literally every single sport. And But it's too many athletes and not enough money. Hmm. That's a great way to look at it. That's a super, that's it. That's yep. it. Only athletes and not enough money. Whereas football, because in the, um, the NCAA, because there's only a few uh, athletes that tunnel through and make it to the NFL, you know, it's not, it's not that many athletes that kind of make it or that want to do it. Where track and field, it's, it's the number two sport in the world and not enough money. That's just it. And at the same time, I mean, I think that it's it's very fair to say that uh, even though the number of participants in track, like you said, is always going to be high, um, I think it's also probably pretty fair that you are a pioneer um, in that world for welcoming and introducing this new level, this new culture, this new normal um, to hopefully, you know, turn the page, so to speak, and introduce a whole new uh, mentality. Because, you know, crisis, you know, tends to be a agent of change, right? And, and I think that when, when people hear what you have to say, when people relate to your experience, you know, I, th- I feel like for, for whatever kind of reason, like you said about your purpose, it almost would seem that some of these things that you've experienced in such a short window of time, um, to me really like points to just being like, yo, like Gwen is straight up like a new pioneer in this broader world of track. Yes. And, and like, and like, there's no denying her ability there's no denying her sense of integrity and there's no denying the strength that she has physically and emotionally to be like, Hey, like I'm on this world to, I'm on this planet to perform, you know? And, and I, and and it's motivating to me just when I like learn more about you. And I know that it's gotta be so motivating for every male and female in the track community that just knows like, this is how it needs to get done going forward. For sure. I think it'll help the minds and the lives of, the, of all the athletes and children that come after me and us. But also, I think it will be good for the sport. The sport mm-hmm. needs to change. Mm-hmm. The Olympic nature and the Olympic um, persona needs to needs to evolve because mm-hmm. that's what's happening around the world. Nothing right. is the same. Nothing will ever be the same. So if we're gonna, if the times are gonna change. Okay, come on, let's change the times for the for the greater right. good of everybody. Yeah, and and on that note, I mean, I saw you recently shout out Raven Saunders on your social feed, mm-hmm. which you know uh, she obviously has such an amazing track record as well. For somebody who's so young, she's a college teammate of yours. Her story yes. is unbelievably um, inspirational, and I mean, like that is the kind of leadership that, like I was saying, from a pioneering standpoint, that I was just like looking more at your story and saying, wow, one, you know, 
you are doing this because of the mission that you have as an individual. And at the same time, it's also clear that like, you know, that there are these other personalities that are around you that also inspire you to continue oh, to sure. do what you're doing. Oh, for sure. Um, a lot of my teammates and a lot of my friends, um, you know, we, we, most of us have the same struggles. If not, you know, most of us endured the same, the exact same things in life getting to this place. So for me, you know, having, having that and looking to them and being motivated and inspired by them, of course, that's just going to push me to keep speaking for them and with them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. until it changes. Well, look, last two questions. Okay. New or current performance goals, either on or off the track? Mm, I really don't have any performance goals only because I'm doing something so new right now with my technique, with my training that I don't even know what I'm capable of. So I'm putting no cap on my abilities. Um, every meet, I'm just going to throw as far as I can and we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. So that's that. <laughs> that's like that's like moment of zen right there yeah i mean i i can appreciate that i like that uh okay all right number two um any books or movies that you can recommend uh for sure i am definitely reading a book from tiana bartoletto actually okay books survive in advance and it's really interesting i really like it i would you know, I would urge a lot of young athletes or non-athletes to read it. She writes so brilliantly and so fluently that um, she's, she's one of the best writers I, I've ever known in my life. So I'm reading her book right now. It's really encouraging and inspiring. Um, as far as movies, mm, I don't watch too many movies. So I, would, I really wouldn't know what movie I would recommend. That's a fair answer. I, I got to be honest. I uh, I'm a huge movie fan, but like a lot of people these days, I feel like when you pop on Netflix or whatever it is, you just scroll, you just yeah. scroll and you don't find anything that you want to see. I mean, I don't know why that is. It's too much. It's too it's much. much. It's, it's too much. Options. It's too many options. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I want to I want to pick up Tiana's book. I'm a huge fan of her. Uh, the stuff that she does on social. She's got it unbelievable amounts of energy man that girl is on another tier <laughs> i mean girl. you want to get motivated in like man. 10 seconds you want to talk about resiliency and like a brilliant individual that's it right there she is it for sure well look gwen i think that a lot of people probably say the exact same thing about you Thank uh you. It, you know, it goes without saying just how impressive everything that you are doing just how impressive it all is. And um, it's a great thrill and a great honor for me. And I'm just so appreciative that you took the time to uh, to connect. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And like I said, it was nice meeting you face to face. And absolutely. You know, I appreciate the support for, for, real. for real. Well, look, hopefully we can do this again. I I'm looking forward to it. Great. All right. Well, look, enjoy uh, the rest of your day and uh, let's catch it up soon. All right. Sounds good. All right, Gwen. Thank you. Thank you.